Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Take the outline. You can take the part that has fathers are to call forth the adult, right? Face that towards you, and then fold it in half, and then you've got the got it the right way. Um, so you can do. Feel free to do that. Yeah. Somebody help Greg. He's having a hard time. Okay. Um, yes, that's true. Yeah, I've got some extras. Okay, um, so what that means for, um, for tonight and for uh, going forward is um, if uh, you probably have noticed we've got a, just a whole boatload of things to cover tonight. If we don't get go all the way through this, I'm not anxious about it. We'll finish it up next month, okay? But if there are some specific things you want to either make sure we talk about or come back to that we've talked about before, uh, let me know that, and we'll we'll do that. Um, the uh, two two or three books that because we've cut off the last couple of sessions, so we're not going to be dealing with the books. Uh, and you'll notice I've not spent a lot of time on the books. Um, hopefully, you'll have benefited from the reading of those and and so on. But if there are questions that bubble up from emotionally healthy church or um, the gift of being yourself, or Abba's child, um, which I think are the final three uh, on the list. I'm happy to talk about any of those things as well. Has anybody started to look at any of those? Yeah, Abba's child, and and huh? Yeah, yeah. It's really it's really really helpful. Um, uh, emotionally Healthy Church is a worthwhile one, too. It might be a curriculum for a group or something like that uh, down, down the line if you, you want to use that uh, for that purpose. I've found it really helpful um, as well. Um, so, again, tonight we'll start with any questions that might bubble up from the last couple of times, uh, and then we'll start to jump into just some core issues, uh, and uh, we'll wander around until we're done. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again, I thank you for the folks who have uh, uh, made a commitment to learning the vocabulary, learning to think about uh, discipleship in a different way, perhaps, than we've been trained in before. I ask you, Lord, to um, let health flow out even from this group to the rest of our church, rest of our community. We want the garden to be a healing community in the city. Uh, we want, therefore, to be healthy at the garden. So uh, give us a sense of what that might look like, uh, especially in these uh, days in which we're still um, kind of figuring stuff out as we go through, through, through things. Uh, pray that you would help us to be dependent on your spirit in that and to learn your ways in, in all things. Um, guide us in our conversation tonight, Lord. Help us to do good work well. Amen. Okay, so um, beginning, any questions or things you want to press into from any of the reading you've done so far or conversations over the last, uh, last, uh, last month's conversation or whatever? 
I don't want to belabor this, but if there are, we can we can dig into that. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Well, in some measure, right, the goal of counsel, advice, everything is Christ-likeness. But soul care moves it over to a less intentional, if you will, counseling. So we're not trying to or not working on or, or problem-oriented. Counseling usually tends to be problem-oriented. And, and we often we will have to choose, myself included, to partner with somebody who knows better how to do the counseling piece of it as a psychologist or whatever. And then I'll take care of the pastoral care, soul care, while they're in parallel conversations with a psychologist or somebody at... I think we're partnering with SIFT, yeah, uh, or Journeys or, or, or something, because the, we're not competent. We are not competent to do a lot of the psychological stuff. Um, we can identify the need for that and, and, and make, the, make recommendations for people to get some help at a more professional level while still dealing with the pastoral care issues. Uh, is that kind of what you were thinking? Um, uh, Peter, uh, and you have to kind of be discerning as to where on that continuum we've talked about this conversation actually is uh, and be willing to say to people, look, I can help you on this side as we move towards Christ likeness. I can partner with you in the care of your soul. But the issue you're dealing with in your marriage or dealing with um, some challenging relationship or your own stuff, addictions or whatever it is, you really need to get somebody to walk with you parallel in that as well. Because I'm not, I, I, I can't be helpful in both things. And particularly, I think as a, as a community, we just generally are not going to be doing a lot of counseling. Uh, I, I, we're, that sets us up beyond the kinds of things that, you know, we do to help folks uh, at stages in marriage or to help folks in preparing for for marriage or to work through some crisis issues, but but parallel to that will be somebody who does the more psychological frame stuff that we just we just don't have the time for. We don't have the emotional bandwidth to do, nor nor the training really to have those kinds of kinds of conversations. Does that make sense? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah.
the thread illustration was helpful then. Good. Yeah. Really amazing conversations, and I feel like I've been able to kind of bleed over into other people are kind of picking up what I'm putting down also. Well, that that I think has been really kind of the heartbeat for what we wanted to do here was to start to shift the culture of our congregation to to these kinds of this kind of vocabulary, these kinds of uh, of of, uh, approach, I guess, where we really want to open up the, the listening piece of the conversation more than the talking piece. Uh, Christians, I think, mistake discipleship. Hey, um, mistake discipleship for telling people things. Discipleship is walking with people in things. Does that make sense? Um, and that means more space and messiness and, and whatnot, but, but also less pressure. Because we don't have to make anybody do anything. Uh, And in fact, you'll notice again, Jesus, who had the capacity to make people do things, never did. And he's the one we follow in the care of souls. Jesus, who had the ability to make people do things, never did. That's it exactly. Okay, so let's start to dig in here. Uh, we've done the introduction thing. So what? And when I talk about issues in soul care, this is a, a my kind of reflection on what likely things and people are going to be coming to us with that we're going to start to deal with, that we're going to start to notice. Uh, and so the first sets of things, we've already talked about this last week a little little bit. And like I said, maybe we want to do, uh, Peter and I were just talking about before the, the thing about kind of where we want to go next. So one of the things I'm going to ask you to do is give us input on this. Give us how can we make this better? Uh, what needs to go? What needs to stay? How do we change maybe format or structure or whatever? Uh, but one of the other pieces that I've noticed that may be helpful would be to do a Saturday, Friday night, Saturday on specific topics or something like that. I don't know whether, you know, space would be available always for that. But, you know, as we think through possibly getting some space to be able to do those kinds of things, that might be helpful. And one of them that bubbled up in our conversation the last couple of times was was maybe it would be helpful to talk about patterns of family dysfunction. And that is how, how kids get messed up uh, and what then happens as we go forward. So, Matt, that might be. When you're saying last time about the um, yeah about the first child and this and that, that has struck me so loudly. Yeah, yeah. So that might be helpful. Okay. That said, then it's not a surprise that among the first sets of issues that we're going to deal with are are in the broad category of what are called parent wounds, things that happen as a result of simply being a child in somebody else's home. 
and that somebody else being an imperfect human being. Uh, please notice, there, most parents don't try and screw up their kids. But most parents are not perfect. So at some level or another, we're going to have to deal with imperfect parents raising children. Right? Um, that said, nobody can blame their parents for who they are. This is really, really important. Nobody can blame their parents for who they are. Uh, you, you may have been dealt that set of cards. You've got to figure out how to play the cards you've been dealt, not blame your parents for dealing you the cards that they dealt you. Does, does that make sense? Uh, and, and this is important because as long as you can blame somebody, you don't have any motivation to change yourself, to grow up. Uh, because you can hook every failure from here till forever on your parents' bad parenting. And that's, you're, you are responsible for the person you are before, before Christ. That said, uh, as a parent, and I, I want to, as a soul care provider, if you will, I want to be aware of what is likely to uh, impact the health of the people that I'm walking with. So, when we talk about parent wounds here, uh, when, and we'll look at mother and father ones more specifically down the, down the line, but first of all, there's a, a, a general pattern of parenting that I alluded to quickly last time that I want to come back in and develop. The first, so what is supposed to be happening in general developmental terms, psychologically, spiritually, and so on, per, as the emergence of a person in, the, in these broad category ages? So I've kind of broken them down to roughly five years. It ebbs and flows a little bit on either side of those. Um, so it could be four, could be six, could move up. You know, you know what I'm saying? And they, and they don't end at five and move on to the next one. There's overlapping kinds of things. So within that framework, zero to five, mom is the primary parent and uh, dad is the secondary parent. Uh, and the primary function, the primary thing that we teach our kids between zero and five is that the world is a safe place. That is to say... It's a place in which there will be uh, comfort, a place of, of shelter, a place of refuge. Uh, you may get hurt, but there's somebody to um, hug you and kind of reestablish you. So security uh, gets established there. Uh, uh, there's a sense in, in, in which um, we have uh, kind of core um, uh, anchors that get established in that, that period of time. So it's primarily a relationship between mom and child with dad as, as the secondary support there. Dad, it's not to say that dad's unimportant. It's that his primary role is less about the developmental piece that takes place in that, in that period of time. And that's true with both boys and girls um, in, in, in that period of time. Does that make sense? Second one, between 5 and 10, uh, this is mostly about play, uh, adventure, uh, managing uh, danger, learning um, recovery, and both parents are e roughly equal during this time. Uh, this is where, you know, we might uh, experience sports or activities of various kinds, uh, building forts in the backyard, the creative, the imagination piece, and the development and encouragement of those things, not over-organizing, 
uh, because then kids don't learn their own sense of play. They, they learn that somebody else teaches them how to play. Uh, if, if, if we exercise a type of benign neglect during this period, remember we talked about that last time, uh, kids will naturally lean into playing during this period of time. Between five, uh, 10 and 15, uh, dad now is the primary parent, uh, and mom has a somewhat secondary role. Again, both are essential, both are critical. The conversations that both have with kids are really important. But dad is the primary one, and the primary task here is the equipping and emergence into adulthood. So dad is the one who gives their children, primarily, who gives their children a sense of their adult competence. That they have capacity to be adults in the world. Now, I'm using adult here as an as a, as a aspirational thing. But this is where we teach responsibility. This is where we, and and particularly the piece here that's really crucial is the sense of uh, uh, being a man or a woman. The dads are the ones that give their sons the gift of their own masculinity, that gives their daughters the gift of their own femininity. So so it's a, a sexuality without sexualization, if that, that makes sense. So, so the, the celebration of his daughter's beauty or the, the uh, pride in his son's emergence as a young man. Uh, and, and again, this is really important then for dad to be solid in who he is so that he is not threatened by his son's emerging masculinity and takes it as an issue of competition. Um, or he's not frightened by his daughter's emerging sexuality or femininity. He can affirm it. He can call it out. He can celebrate it without reducing her to an object. Does that make sense? And then 15 to 20, uh, both the partners again. And the goal here is to get them out of the house uh, to, to the final launch phase. So... Uh, we, we, what are the skills they need to between the ages of 10 and 18, 19, 20 to be able to manage on their own? Balancing a checkbook, changing the oil, making dinner, learning how to cook. Both boys and girls in this culture need to learn how to do all of those things. And obviously it's easier if you don't wait till they're 15, but if you have been bringing them along in that all the way along, then here is the stage where you where you hand them their life just before they think they're ready for it. You give them responsibilities when they're not quite sure that they can handle it. You trust them before they believe they're completely trustworthy. Now, this is a challenge because if you have more than one child, one of the children will believe they're able for that responsibility before you do. And they will start to grab at that. So you've got to find some ways to lead them into their own lives in some measure of safety. Uh, Between 10 and 15 uh, is crash and burn with consequences, usually that are oriented to the event itself. Between 0 and 10, we certainly want them to experience the consequences of their own life, but they might be artificial. You know, if you don't hold my hand while crossing the street at 2 then there, there may be some, I will administer some consequences. 
because I don't want you to get killed. That's too severe a consequence to pay for you to learn the lesson of, of obedience, right? But when we're 12, uh, you, might, you might get knocked off your bike because you're not paying attention. And I'm going to let that happen. We cannot, the, the most damage we do to kids is protecting them from everything. Uh, so, so in 15 to 20, we're really kind of, okay, you, you broke the window. You need to figure out how to either pay for somebody to fix it or you need to learn how to fix it yourself, right? Or various things. You had a car accident. Oh, man, that's, that's really going to be rough. How are you going to pay the increase in the insurance premium? Oh, you need to learn how to work. Right? Uh, I think there's all kinds of value in kids learning how to manage money by earning it themselves rather than, than being given it. You know, those, those, just those basic, basic kinds of things uh, that are there. Now, the reason I underline that is I want you to notice then when you're walking with people, uh, if they have suffered some kind of trauma at the parenting level, a divorce, the death of a parent, um, something of that nature, it's important to think through when that happened because it will change what the outcome is depending on when that happens. So, for example, if we have a divorce and we're eight, what gets short-circuited? Playfulness gets short-circuited. We're moved into an adult self before we're ready for it. Uh, we don't know how to play, right? Uh, and we tend, will tend to lose our sense of the world as a safe, recoverable space. So we become, tend to become anxious. Now, this will be different depending on birth order and so on, but, but that's, a, that's a big deal. If dad is emotionally absent at 12... What gets missed? Right? So, so that emergence into adulthood gets compromised, and particularly at the level of sexuality. So an emotionally absent dad um, can, can uh, push daughters into finding someone who will call out and validate their femininity, push sons into trying to prove their masculinity, uh, for example, move into a, highly, uh, a, a sexuality that's sexualized rather than a sexuality that isn't sexualized, which is the gift fathers give to sons and daughters. Does that make sense? Um, so um, the other piece on this is to remember that no matter what age you are, when parents get divorced, it has impact. So if you're 25 and your parents get a divorce, it still has impact. And mostly at the level of believing whether what you've lived in has been a lie. So every, all of the pieces go back in the, in, 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 uh, the, the box kind of, kind of thing and get resorted, reshuffled. Okay, so that's just some basic stuff at that introductory. Any questions or comments or thoughts on that? Everybody okay? All right. So, some general things. Uh, issues arise from general parenting patterns. Parenting by guilt and shame. 
while it might produce conformed behavior, will over a lifetime produce hiding and performance. So the more we parent by guilt and shame, the greater the likelihood our children will hide from us and or perform for us. By perform, I mean do what you want them to do so you don't notice what they're not doing. So that bleeds into relationships with God and so on and so forth. So if guilt is a big deal, then we've got to remember that what that produces uh, is hiding in performance. Okay? Guilt and shame are not of God, correct? Correct. Well, guilt is a forensic reality. But if we parent by guilt, i.e. making our children feel guilty, that's not appropriate. It's a way of manipulation. Right? So guilt ought to be reserved for moral wrongdoing. That's what it's for. And if it's used for anything else, it ends up becoming manipulative. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't call at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon. Don't you care about your mother? Right? That's a, an attempt to manipulate behavior by guilt. And it produces lying and hiding. No. Tend not to be. Okay? So the second one that arises from general parenting patterns is abandonment issues. Uh, most of the, the most harmful abandonment stuff is emotional abandonment. In fact, a, a, a father who is physically absent but emotionally present, there's almost no discernible impact on their children. So they make the phone calls, they do the Skypes, they do the the flowers sent to the daughter's high school on her birthday. They do the emotional presence stuff. But a father who may be physically present but emotionally absent, and it's mostly dads in this. Why? Because 10 to 15 is when this emergence season happens. Mothers are almost never exceptions, but almost never emotionally absent in the same damaging way that fathers are. Dads tend to be threatened by their kids and so create distances and barriers. I don't know. 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 I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And so rather than learn into what I'm doing, we create barriers. We raise our children by silence. And that ends up not being very helpful. So a father who is physically present but emotionally absent does more harm in terms of the development of his kids than a father who is physically absent but emotionally present. Um, so I've, I've got kids that um, dad was at every Saturday soccer game, but he might as well not have been. He was physically present, but he was on his iPad the whole time. He was reading the newspaper. All his engagement was yelling at his kid because he dropped the ball or because he didn't catch the fly or because whatever, whatever. And that was parenting. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, 
And then the other one that is a huge category of concern is uh, children who the, are the adult children of, of addicts of one kind or another. Alcohol, sexuality, uh, pornography is usually where that shows up. But um, spirituality and religion can become addictions as well. And the children, adult children of spiritual addicts function in the same way as the adult children of alcoholics. So it's a whole category of behaviors that we watch. People-pleasing is a huge part of that. Walking on eggshells, constantly maintaining um, distance, uh, challenges with close emotional connections, uh, constantly being able to survey a room and know what everyone in the room wants of them at any given moment uh, because they have been trained in a system in which dad or mom might fly off the handle. Is, is, it, are we, is, it a, is, is it a good dad or a bad dad today? A good mom, a bad mom today. And I need to, I need to figure that out because if I don't, I could get whacked. Uh, so, so I'm going to figure that out. And kids are enormously resourceful when it comes to this. The problem is they don't realize you don't have to carry that into the rest of your life. But they do. So they, so they do. Um, and, and there's a whole pattern of behaviors that follow the adult children of alcoholics. We can talk about that sometime if you'd like to. Um, but any questions on, on that general category of concern? Yeah, so the, the adult children of alcohol, of, of addicts of one kind or another, uh, 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 struggle with um, boundary issues, uh, people pleasing as a general rule, uh, close relationships and maintaining uh, close relationships, um, uh, and especially close intimate relationships. Uh, those, those would be the, the primary concerns. They tend to be fairly anxious. Uh, uh, people and vibrate at a fairly high rate. Trust is a huge factor with them as well. Uh, the adult children of alcoholics have been trained to be hyper-responsible. So they will be your high performers, for example, in school. Why? Well, because if they fail in some weather, they get beat. So I'll just overproduce. Could it also be that maybe if I do really good with mom and dad, Not with the adults piece. Uh, there is an element of that, uh, but uh, usually the, the children of divorce perform academically at about a 75% rate. rate. Because the emotional bandwidth for full intellectual engagement is not available to them. They're carrying too much anxiety over what's happened to, to parents and whatnot. I'm going to talk about addiction a little bit later on, but where do I go to mask my pain as opposed to actually deal with it? So, so praying for courage to lean into my pain is not spiritual addiction. Um, praying, worshiping, serving, 
as a way to avoid my pain moves us into the category of addiction. Because, yeah, does that make sense? Thanks, man. Okay, so, any other, any questions on that? Okay, so, father wounds specifically. Uh, the first one, as you probably have picked up, is sexual identity. Um, and for, for obvious reasons. Um, this one is particularly bubbling up in our conversations as a society right now because of the whole uh, GLBTQ conversation. Um, that's the one. Yeah, I knew there was something. But anyway, um, what I was, what, what's important for us to recognize is, and we can do a whole conversation on this if you want to, uh, but the, the, the science on uh, same-sex attraction is um, really fascinating and really slippery. Uh, partly because we, there are genetic tracers, brain chemistry tracers, that seem to indicate the likelihood of same-sex attraction. They occur in kids who have no interest in the same sex as much as they occur in kids that do. And the trigger factor seems to be relationship with dad more than the genetic marker. So somewhere in the vicinity of 75 to 80% of same-sex attracted teenagers or adults will point to a troubled relationship of an emotionally, with an emotionally absent father. That seems to be the main factor that shows up. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Uh, lesbianism, as a general rule, is much, much less common uh, than, and, 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 well, I'll just leave it at that, much less common than uh, uh, same-sex attraction for men. Uh, and, and you can figure out why now, because if the issue is a father calling out, validating, and empowering his son's masculinity, and there's an emotionally absent father, as a primary challenge, that's going to be hugely problematic. To, to some degree, yeah. Yeah. The other factor is a domineering mother. An absent father, a domineering mother can tend to be another one, but that's a, that's a, much, that's a trailing indicator, not a, not a leading one like emotionally absent father. So what, what that says to, says to us, there are, there are genetic indicators, brain chemistry indicators, if I can use that language, uh, that pre, seem to predispose certain people to same-sex attraction. Um, the question is, because we can't look at that until somebody has died, did the behavior change the brain chemistry, or was the brain chemistry responsible for the behavior? And we don't know. And it's virtually impossible. This is why I'm saying the science 
is, is really difficult on this at this stage of the game. But it's important for us as believers to, to, to kind of get our heads and hearts around the fact that sexual identity and sexual attraction are not sin. That they are what they are. It's behavior, whether homo or, or, or heterosexual, that moves us into the category of self-destruction, which is what sin is. Right? So can somebody be a faithful disciple of Christ and be same-sex attracted? Of course. Of course. And he or she will have the same challenges as a faithful disciple of Christ who is opposite sex attracted but has no ability to act on that attraction because the covenant commitment that enables sexual behavior is not present for that. Does that make sense? So pastoral care needs to we, we ought not make being something sinful because it isn't. I know. Yeah, we're, we've got a we've got a creeper. That's all right, a lurker. <laughs> um, so anyway, that said, <laughs> you want to come in? <laughs> so does that make sense? Okay. So sexual identity, then emotional absence. We've already talked a little bit about that. Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm talking about soul care and watching people have a cup of coffee if you want to. Soul care, caring for people's souls. This is a church group, and that's what we're doing. So, uh, from the garden, Long Beach. Yeah, good. Yeah, welcome. Now that's all right. Huh? Yeah, right. I shouldn't. Okay, uh, the emotional absence piece we've already talked a little bit about, but that's a that's a that's a big one. Uh, and, and starts to really bubble up to the surface in the late teens and early 20s um, and continues really largely. A lot of, of middle-aged men, a lot of middle-aged women are still working through troubled relationships with dad because that, especially at the sexual identity issue, especially at the, the, the validation of, of that, if that has been abused or challenged or, or misused in some way, um, that is a really tough, tough, tough um, um, kind of thing to negotiate. You'll never not have that have had that happen. But how does that work itself out in my marriage? How does that work itself out in my own parenting of my kids? How does that work itself out in my own sense of myself? Uh, that that piece is there. This is one of the reasons why we keep have to have to keep underlining the idea of God being our Father, but then defining what kind of Father God is. Uh, uh, so that that's a, a, a piece of that. Questions on any of that? You guys just gonna let me talk all night? That's, that's is everybody okay? Okay. So. Fathers are then to call forth the adult in their children. Uh, and this is uh, 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 what we're, we're looking at, and I've already underlined this a bit, but with pride, approval, encouragement, and belief with hope. So I'm proud of the person you are. Children need to hear that, but they more need to feel it. 
right? So they do bonehead stupid things. It ought not undermine our pride in them as persons. Remember, our ability to control our children's behavior is beginning to wind down by the time they're 12 or 13. Right? So now I want to maintain enough of a relationship with them that I want them to know that they're uh, being included as part of our community, our family, is not dependent on their behavior. Because they'll test that limit. Do you love me when I perform and don't love me when I don't? And it's important that, I, in my view at least, that our, our love and acceptance and embrace of our kids is not rooted in their satisfying us. Um, you have to establish appropriate boundaries if behaviors are, are destructive to others. Uh, you, have to, you, you have to be willing to establish boundaries, but in general, the, it, it, they need to have a sense of your, your pride in them, approval of them, and then encouragement into their adult um, life and a belief that they're going to be fine and successful with hope in, in that. Does that make sense? And dads are the, are the primary ones. Moms are supposed to tell their kids that they're proud of them, that they're the best, that you can be the president, you can be anything you want. But kids long for, both boys and girls, long for dad to be emotionally present and to affirm for them um, that, that truth. So when that's missing, they're going to show up and they're going to be drawn to people who will affirm them. And if you're a, a, a 15, 16, 17, 25, 30-year-old girl, woman, and haven't heard, you will try and find a way to hear it. Same. Yeah. Yep, and that's an appropriate way, yeah. And does it, will it prove to be as healthy as if you had a father in Not quite, not quite, but the fact that you're there and you're the man that you are, uh, there's an awkwardness, and she need, you, that we're going to have to sit her down at some point and say, you know what, men and women are different, and you're a woman. So here's, I love you and care for you, value you, but we need to have some, we need to think about this without her feeling embarrassed or ashamed or whatever. It's a trick. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're talking about them. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and, and this is where there's real sensitivity. Remember, we said on that continuum, right? So there may be, in soul care, a move back over to the council piece where we say to people, um, I think we probably should talk about your relationship with your dad. We should probably, and whether you talk about it with me or you go and talk to a counselor on this, this seems to keep on surfacing. Uh, we see this an awful lot with women who continually choose men who are harmful to them in relationships. Uh, for example, uh, why do you keep doing it? I don't know. Okay, well, that's, that would be worth finding out. Uh, so I will, and, and part of it now is because I've walked with somebody over the years, be able to maybe help them work for that, work in that way. Sometimes there is the transference piece and they, remember Scarzeros talked about being reparented by the church. The church can step in in the form of, of men and women who are parents and grandparents to kids. Because no parent, parents, can be solely responsible for the raising of their children. It takes a community. It takes a village, if you wish, right? Uh, of, to, to, to partner, to reinforce. Uh, when my kids were... Growing up, they needed other men in the church who would underline what I said. Then they would believe them more than they would believe me. So there's that. And I think that sometimes it is just a matter of, 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 uh, of saying to them, I'm seeing some things that are, are bubbling up here. Um, and, and then particularly if they come, I, because I'm dealing with a lot of differentiation issues with you know, early 20 and mid-20-somethings, Okay, we need to talk about this. Yeah. 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 Okay, six, yeah. Shorthand success is leaving home. Yep. Because when I've left home, I've differentiated from a family of origin. I've not divorced myself from them. I recognize the parenting I had. But now I'm choosing to respond rather than react to it. This is what occurred to me. My parents divorced when I was eight. I have probably not a very good capacity to play. So I need to figure that out. Does that make sense? Um, and uh, or I'm I'm I struggle with my dad left when we were, and my stepdad and I didn't get along really well. So, all right. So now what? Where's that going to show up in your marriage? Where's that likely to show up in your in your relationships with 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 friends and so on? Um, and and. So the leaving home means knowing where home was and responding rather than reacting. So remember one of the first couple of sessions we talked about what gets resisted gets reversed or what gets denied gets repeated. That's what we're talking about. And the way forward on that is differentiation that says, I don't have to be what my history defined for me to be. And then it's, let's walk together, let's learn some new dance steps, let's learn some new ways to negotiate that. So then we move into more of a coaching, 
peace if we have capacity for that or bring somebody else into the conversation who can be more helpful in that. That's it. And, and remember, the Holy Spirit is bubbling this up. So you've put, got your, put your finger right on it. You'll, you'll sit there and you'll watch the light come on. That's the work of the Spirit. Well, at some point, somebody needs maybe somebody who loves her enough to say, do you like? Yeah, and her response is, yeah, so let's talk about why you keep choosing people who are damaging to you. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think so. Well, and something in the last year and a half, I would be willing to say that I have become very aware of why my relationships have failed, all of them. And um, I had to finally be told in a really kind of harsh way. And what really was eye opening for me is there's a common denominator to all these relationships that have failed. And how bad. So whether it's the work of the Spirit that brings her to herself or it's I'm sick and tired of doing this anymore and I don't want to do it enough to deal with the pain, something like that has to happen. Yep. And this is, a, uh, this is why we started off with you can't make people do anything. No, right. Yeah. Okay, so we talked a little bit about father wounds. Mother wounds uh, are, are um, pretty substantial as well. Uh, most of them root in mothers defining themselves by their role as mother. What? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't get what the problem is. I think that must... Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, what happens here is the culture, especially the church culture, I, I, I need to be careful on how I say this because I don't want to be misunderstood, but links women's identity to the role of mother in a way in which it does not link men's identity to the role of father. So what happens is you get, you get little boys growing up and ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't say, I want to be a dad. But you ask a lot of little girls what they want to be when they grow up and they will say, I want to be a mom. So that sense of who I am gets built in early and most of these come out of that. That because I'm unable to separate my central self from my role as a mother, I don't know how not to be a mother even though my son or daughter's 40. I don't know how to be not to be a mother even though I'm crippling my child by overprotection. Right? So, false reflection uh, where, where mothers reflect back to their child how they would like them to be rather than celebrating the core of the child that actually is. A false reflection. So this is one of the, one of the ways that, that moms uh, think they're helping their child become who they should be is by reflecting back to them. Remember the principle of the reflective other? So they reflect back a self that they idealize their child to be. Is that making sense? And so the child sees himself in his mother's eyes or herself in his mother's, her mother's eyes and thinks that's who they are, but that's a false self that's been created by a false reflection. And when they start to emerge in the true self, that starts to get shattered. Uh, and then mothers feel like failures. I have one woman that I'm walking with right now whose mother desperately has tried to convince her that she's not a dancer but a harpist. So they have spent tens of thousands of dollars on instruments, on lessons, on performances, and all the little girl wants to do is dance. Right? So now, as at 21, she's an accomplished harpist. She can do the stuff, but she wants to be a dancer. Not as a profession, she just wants to dance. Do you see? And the last conversation she and her mom had didn't go very well. Because how can you be so ungrateful? We spent tens of thousands of dollars on harps and so on and so forth. Her instrument is $25,000. Harps aren't cheap. You know, it's like hauling around a grand piano. Right? And, and, and she said, well, you never ask me. What? That's the false reflection. Uh, overprotection. Uh, creating in children a sense of incompetence. And this is particular in the case of daughters. Uh, although it's starting to surface more in sons as well, but a kind of a greenhouse effect so that, so that I, uh, it, you'd be surprised how many girls 
leave home and don't know how to cook. Or don't know how to change the oil. Or don't know how to... Because everything has been taken care of. Daddy's little princess. Or, or you, you know, so that the, the skills necessary for adult functioning are not available. And, and over-management, this is the micromanaging of children's lives mostly by activity. Uh, we, we see this a lot, lot in the... Hmm, it's a safe place to be. Um, a lot in the, in the South Orange County soccer mom culture where, I mean, moms complain about it all the time, but they are perpetually hauling kids from ballet to soccer to Little League to aerobics to gymnastics to Kumon for math to da 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 And all the kids want to do is stay home and play. Uh, but this overmanagement, micromanaging, rather than creation of whole healthy individuals who's free to succeed or fail based on who they are and what they choose. So, is is there a healthy? Well, of course. Do you want to play baseball? Okay, let's try it for a year, and see. Uh, but you can choose one sport, not eight. Or. I mean, there's a number of ways to work that, but notice what's at stake here is me being thought to be a good mom, not parenting the child that I've got. And we live in a culture that defines being a good mom by dressing your kids in Oshkosh Bagosh, right? Or as little kids, or, you know, if they've got a have piano lessons or they've got to do all of those other things. Those are all valuable. Look, nothing wrong with the things. It's an issue of uh, why are you doing it. Then uh, living by proxy. Uh, this is um, where we, want, we shape our children to do certain things, to be certain things that we wished we had been when we were their age but didn't. So, for example, I had a kid who came to school and her dad and mom were basically hippies and came to faith late in, in, uh, in their uh, teens, early 20s, and uh, had uh, already a pregnancy that brought them to marriage. And so that was her older brother. And now she is kind of the child of Christian parents. The first they came to faith... And, and she, so, so her mom was her call to ministry. In other words, um, this is what I always wish I could have done, so you, you, must, you must also wish to do this. That's the mother speaking. So she called her daughter to ministry. You can't be called to pastoral ministry by your mother. God has to do that. Right? So the girl comes in. She's a fabulous communicator. She goes all the way through four years of college. On her final semester, she and I go out for coffee. We've had a good conversational relationship for a couple of years. And she says, I don't want to do this. I want to be a fashion designer. I want to go to Fitham. But my mom thinks if I'm not pastor that I'm in rebellion to God. Mm, no. 
right? So that took us a while to sort through. Living by proxy. Uh, failure to release, you know what that is about. Um, a, a regular interference in the lives of adult children. Making sure everything's okay. Just checking up on you. Come over for dinner. Let Bring your laundry. You know, whatever, right? And those can be benign kinds of things, or they can be ways of maintaining necessary connection. I had one guy who... <laughs> It's one of those things that you just, you, you, you try as hard as you can not to laugh out loud. Because here's a couple I did pre-marriage with. They got married. And um, his mother, his mother, still wanted him to bring his laundry home on Saturday. A married man, right? And he could not understand why his wife wouldn't want the help. So they, we came in and talked about this, and, and she says, well, the reason I don't want the help is because all your mother do, does is teach me how you want it done, and I'm going to do it the way I think it needs to be done. If you want it done your way, you do it yourself. What, what's to talk about? Right. So, do, do you see what I'm after there? And then role confusion. What is the nature of the relationship between mothers and, and particularly daughters? Uh, are they sisters? Or is there mother-daughter and then renegotiated friendship? Right? You'll always be mom. You'll always be daughter. But the relationship has to change when you're an adult daughter relating to an adult mom. That doesn't That doesn't mean you can't be good friends. It doesn't mean that you can't have some level of shared life together, uh, but that that pattern of relationship gets established when you have released them to their adult self and gets renegotiated. Okay? Uh, okay, questions on any of that so far? Yes? Um, living by proxy is training my daughter to live as I wished or believed I should have. Living, uh, so that's the proxy. False reflection is training my daughter or son to live the way I think they should, even though if it's not what I would have done had I been them. A lot of kids go to medical school because their mom tells them they're going to be doctors. I have a guy that we walked with who's who was supposed to be a cardiovascular surgeon until he discovered he loved music. And he plays French horn professionally, subs in for the symphony. He does after scores for movies and whatnot. But his mother was convinced that he was supposed to be a... And he started off in medical school. And six months in, he and I had a had a hard conversation and okay I know right yeah I don't have any friends all of my friends are really young I don't have any peer friends well I, and, and frankly I've huh what yeah right right um, 
I think it, uh, it, the, the question is an important one because um, I do talk to parents. Uh, and, and in my role at the university, uh, you know, I don't, I, I have, I'm, I'm not afraid to talk to parents. It's, but I've had to have conversations where I, I, I've, I've had to say to them, you don't, you don't, you need to learn who your child is, not who you want him or her to be. And your job is done. You've got to, how, how it goes forward from this point on really is going to depend on whether you release them to their own life with blessing or not. If you do that, they really love you. They'll be back. They might not be back in the same shape and size that you sent them out, but they'll be back. Right? I, I, I am at a about 70-30 acceptance. Yeah. Because there's a, there's a case to be made and almost always it's by saying, talk to me about how your folks released you to your adult life. They didn't. Do you want the same for your kid? Do you know? Um, so it, it's just... What do, you, what, what, do you, what do you want coming out of the end of this? And you see this with, you know, with uh, tattoos is a big deal and piercings is a big deal. So I've had to mediate. And one guy, his dad was used to play for the Lakers. And so, I mean, this guy, I mean, he comes in, I think probably your height, and he comes into my office and it's like, and, and his son, who is in the military, so I've got these... Uh, if they start fighting, we're not. This is not going to go well. I mean, look at me. <laughs> you know, but he says, "I want you to tell my dad why it's okay for me to get a tattoo." Wow. I, I'm not going to do that. I will help your dad understand why tattoos aren't in the Bible, in the way that he's banging you over the head with, because I can do that. But this isn't about tattoos. This is about you being a son he can be proud of. So let's talk about that. So I still get... Actually, that, I'm on that Christmas card list. I get one from each of them. Dave travels all over the world with the military. He's a career military, and his dad is a businessman in Newport. Anyway. So, anything else on that? So I get some people off the list, others on. It balances out. Quick question. The uh, role, role confusion with the female, male nor female, is probably in even more situations than the role of the partying and drugs and that kind of confusion involved as well. That's even more. Yep. Remember a lot of, huh? Well, I mean, you start with whoever has an interest in health. You start with whoever's willing to talk to you. Got to leave home. How are you doing at leaving home? How are you doing at letting your mom be other than you 
How are you doing at living your own life without being a reflection of her? Positive and negative. Remember, because you can leave home positively or leave home negatively. And you want to just leave home. Remember, a lot of us, if we haven't differentiated, many of the choices that are made are made in reflection of our failure to differentiate. So, yeah, if we haven't differentiated, if we haven't left home, if we haven't become our, whole, our own person, we still make choices based on the family expectations. Right? So, remember, we used the illustration, if, if Daddy's always driven a, a Ford... I'm going to be positively fused and buy a Ford, or I'm going to be negatively fused and buy a Chevy, but Daddy's still controlling what car I drive. As opposed to saying, I've left home. I get to buy a Mazda. I don't have, he doesn't, they don't have to define who I am or what I like or what I do. You know? Okay, so uh, boundaries. Uh, boundaries uh, are important ways that enable uh, intimacy. A container that has no edges is not a container. So when we think about boundaries, we need to think of those five dimensions of human personhood, social, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, physical, and consider where the container is in each of those and who has access beyond those boundaries? Who has the right, for example, to tell you what to think or how to feel? Who has the right to touch you in certain ways in certain places? Who has the right to um, uh, shape or critique your spiritual life and journey? Who has the right to, who has the place to shape friendships? Does that, does that make sense? Um, and that ought to be a fairly small list. But if you don't have a good sense of yourself, which is where boundaries begin, that will be a huge list. Because everybody has the right to tell me what to think. I, in fact, will take a vote before I know what I think. That's the pseudo-self moving to the solid self. And the more solid I am, the more boundaried I am. And then I can... Uh, foundations and boundaries, the family system helps set that up. So again, conversation from last time, the healthier the family system, the greater the likelihood that boundaries was, will exist in health. The fused family system has little or no boundaries. There's no part of a, of a fused family that the, every member of the family can't get involved in. So, for example, um, a fused family, mom will have no problem telling her married son how his daughter, how her, her wife ought to behave. That's a boundary violation. A healthy family with appropriate boundaries, that doesn't happen. A fused family, that happens all the time. And it's because we're close. No, it's because we're a fused family. There's no boundaries. There's no place where you end and I begin. 
right? Uh, so, fewest families have the greatest number of potential boundary violations and, and, or boundary rigidities. Because uh, relationships require both appropriate boundaries and sometimes people be able to get in. There are people who ought to have access to my heart. There are people who ought to have access to a social network of friendship to me, right? I can't be so relentlessly self-protective that all I am is boundaries. But who is it that gets in? So Jesus, for example, didn't let everybody in who wanted to get in. He had 12, and of the 12, he had three, and of the three, he had one. That's instructive to me. Right? That, that not everybody is going to be my best friend. And so how many Lego blocks do I have? How many points on the brick of my life do I have? Do I have real capacity for? That needs to be okay. Um, and then early socialization helps shape boundaries. Uh, so, Cloud and Townsend have done a lot of work on boundaries, uh, boundaries and relationships, and they're not the only ones, of course. It's a, it's a pretty important uh, dynamic. But the best place to begin to establish healthy boundaries is by increasingly the increasingly solid self so that I can say yes and no with meaning. Because boundaries are what enable me to know what is yes and what is no. Um, so self-care is the best place to begin on, the, on that one. You'll notice here our false theology of, jo- of joy. Have we done this before? We, every, anybody grow up in Sunday school know what J-O-Y is about? Jesus and others in you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. That is a recipe for boundaryless living. It's a recipe for disaster. What did Jesus do? He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he loved himself. Then he loved others as he loved himself. If you don't love yourself well, you won't love others well. Does that make sense? It's very challenging for us as Christians because we're always taught others, 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 others. Well, wait. If you keep doing that, there's no end. There's no boundary. There's no you there. There's no there. And that will not be very long before you will be relentlessly running to keep everybody happy. And Jesus just didn't do it. Yeah. 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 It, it, it certainly can. Yeah. And, and in that case, you do want to push the others, others' piece. So, uh, so it depends on where they're at and what the conversation is. You're, no, you're exactly right. Yeah. 
you just got to keep pushing them. I mean, churches do this. It's going to be a, always a challenge for a church to to keep eyes focused on the on the out 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 rather than our happy holy huddle. Okay. Uh, so addictions. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll talk for a few minutes about, about this. Addictions are... Um, we could spend, obviously, the whole night dealing with, with, with this conversation, but in, in, when we use that language, we need to maybe just, first of all, r- recognize that there's no clear and common kind of definition of what constitutes an addiction. Uh, because there are those who say it's not an addiction until you will choose that, whatever it is, alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever, over what is healthy and good for you. Uh, marriage, uh, job, uh, food. It's not an addiction until that's the case. That seems to me to be too extreme. But there are those who say, if I'm moderately compulsive uh, with food or with alcohol or with whatever, that's, a com- that's an addiction. And, and I think the truth probably, the way I think about it at least, lies more towards the center. So what I think of as an addiction and how I walk with people in this is to say, how do you deal with your pain? How do you deal with your discomfort? How do you deal with it disappointment? How do you deal with sadness? Um, and if you find yourself going to self-medicating practices or procedures, rather than actually dealing with the pain or the disappointment or the sadness or whatever, then there's a fairly decent chance that you're moving into addictive behaviors. Does that make sense? Uh, and typically, then, you want to use the acronym, which I think we've talked about before, uh, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored. And if those five are the motivating push to 3 o'clock in the morning web surfing for pornography or uh, Uh, prescription drug abuse or alcohol or um, uh, uh, spirituality or whatever, um, then you probably want to... I'll come back just one sec. You probably want to consider whether there are other ways of dealing with that pain or that discomfort. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored. So halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored. And then the other thing that happens, especially in what I think of as negative addictions, because remember I've I've suggested that people will find refuge in work. Workaholism is just as damaging as alcoholism is in many ways. Uh, But it's a positive addiction. We get approved for that. We get paid better if we're addicted to our work. There's a spiritual addiction that we get. Whoa, that's really cool. You're constantly serving in the church or you're 
investing in other lives and instead of dealing with your own stuff. That's not, that's not good. But if it's a negative alcohol, drugs, sexuality, whatever, often that produces shame. And then shame becomes the follow-on push to the behavior. So that's the, 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 the sixth one. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, bored, or shame. And if those um, are present as the motivating factors to the behavior, then we probably are dealing with, with an addictive propensity. Uh, alcoholism is a disease. It is a brain chemistry issue, and it has genetic markers that we can track and therefore, you have to be aware of. Um, and and uh, the recovery community is a, a wonderful resource to assist people. If you're walking with somebody who is managing pain by some of these, these methodologies, it will be most helpful for them if you can get them into a 12-step program of some kind. Celebrate Recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narconon, something that will regularize a pattern of response other than self-medication. Yes? You say alcoholism has chemical markers, uh, uh, markers in the brain chemistry that have a higher degree of pleasure released with alcohol than some of the other things. So alcohol specifically has genetic markers that signal it as a disease. The other addictive practices, not so much. That's true. So, and they will, if it's not an alcohol, it'll probably be just be compulsive behaviors. Anytime. Yes. And that's that's how you push back against it. it yeah. Exactly. That's correct. Yeah. The issue, though, is to be aware of that, and to and to reconstruct the behavior patterns so that you don't go there. Yeah. And this is important, by the way, especially in our kind of culture that we're living with now, because I grew up, as many of you perhaps did, the, the, the old people in the room at least, Greg, um, uh, but where, where alcohol was off the table for people who were disciples of Jesus. Uh, that is not the case anymore. It's not a sin, which is true. Now the issue is, how do we help people negotiate their relationship with alcohol in healthful ways that are non-condemning, but actually promote Christ-likeness rather than um, uh, out-of-controlness.
and that's the challenge. Well, Proverbs does, uh, and, and I really think it, I, I don't want to get to the demonizing of, of the issue, otherwise it gets hidden and there's shame attached and then we lie and all of this stuff that then really empowers it. So if you were to ask me, I will make a case as strong as I can for total abstinence, because, and I think I can make a pretty good case for that. Uh, but I'm not going to dismiss or make it a condition of fellowship or whatever. And if I'm walking with somebody for whom this is not an issue, then I'd, I don't have a, have a, have a problem. Uh, so I don't want to over-spiritualize. I don't want to come at sledgehammer solution with a nail problem. You really do. Yep. And, and, and frankly, for, for me and a lot of people that I've walked with, which is why I think your comment is a valuable one, it's just easier to say no all the time than to think through the no every once in a while. I think my problem is I just can't afford it. I, just, I, I don't know how it happens. I just lock up. Anyway. Hmm? Yeah. There you go. Thanks for that suggestion, Jerry. Wow. Okay. I I, I don't No, and and again we have we have guys in our community for whom that's that's a, a craft and an art. And I, I don't that's why it's important, however, that we help people negotiate their relationships with this. Darren and I are trying to figure out um, just in some issues that have surfaced over the last few months with us in the, in the community, how do we have this conversation uh, in ways that will be healthy for our, for our body? Talking about alcohol, talking about premarital sexuality, talking about uh, same-sex attraction, talking about what the, where the garden kind of lands on some things but being able to have a nuanced conversation, which is what those actually require, so that we can 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 include things like gossip and backbiting and 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 slander, which are are damaging to the. It's, it's because Paul lists a whole range of things that are problematic, and when we demonize one or two and make them the worst, then, then with the rest of us, well, well I'm, I'm not that, so I must be okay. And, and that's not helpful. So we're trying to figure out how to have that conversation. Uh, and, uh, um, but anyway, you can pray with us on that. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Context. Yep. No, exactly. Well, and, and, and I think the other piece on this is to, you know, when you look at, say, biblical qualifications for per- persons to serve in leadership roles, elder, deacon, whatever, alcohol shows up in the New Testament list. And it's not never, it's you're not known as a drunk. So that disqualifies you. It's not that you never have a drink. So... They were dealing with the nuance back in the day. And so we, I think we need to deal with it with integrity now, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, pray with us on that because we're trying to figure out how to do that in a helpful way. Uh, I'm just going to finish up on this last one, and then we'll pick up forgiving and being forgiven next month. All right? But the grief, mourning, and depression uh, piece is a huge one. Uh, remember, we suggested that sadness is one of the protector emotions. It's how we process and deal with, identify and process loss. Uh, when that loss is defined by us as catastrophic, and please remember that qualifier, defined by us as catastrophic, the, the sadness may work itself out more through grief and mourning than it does through simple sadness and mild depression. So the loss of a loved one, for example, a, a, a parent, a, a, a child, a spouse, a, um, a close friend, that is perceived by us as a catastrophic loss, and the degree to which it is, is the degree to which grief then becomes the way we process that loss. Um, But if I am um, a... a, uh, I, I might process the loss of a job with grief rather than simply with sadness. Does that make sense? If, I, if that's a catastrophic loss to me, if the loss of a pet is a catastrophic loss to me, I will process that with grief rather than, and mourning rather than just with, with sadness. So it's a continuum based on how I perceive the, 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 the loss. As it moves into grief, uh, it is a process that can take a period of time. We've mentioned, talked about this briefly before, I think. 
that, that if, if it's, for example, the loss of a loved one, depending on where in the year that death occurred, the grief cycle takes anywhere between a year and a year and a half. Because you have to cycle through all of the reminder days and events. So Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's and anniversaries and birthdays and so on and so forth. And grief can surface, even having processed that catastrophic loss, at, at trigger points all along the way. I can't go past December 10th any year since 1984 because that's the day my mom died. December 10th, I will have a generalized malaise and I won't, I won't have registered that it's that day until something triggers and, oh, that's why. Right? Uh, January 29th, my parents' anniversary, but it was also the day my dad died. Um, February 10th, my dad's birthday. August 19th, my mom's birthday. And, and, and you just, you go, th- you go th- through, through it again. Uh, grief, the, the rule is feel what you feel when you feel it and don't feel what you don't feel when you don't feel it. In other words, the body is very well equipped to grieve. So we, we let it grieve. We let it flush itself out of the system. Do you feel like crying? Then cry. Do you feel like laughing? Because sometimes laughter is a part of the way of grief. Then laugh. Do you feel nothing? Then feel nothing. Don't try and make yourself sad or make yourself happy because I should be over this. Feel what you feel when you feel it. Don't feel what you don't feel when you don't feel it. If an event caused sadness, depression, doesn't work its way through the system in a reasonable period of time, and if there is a family or genetic predisposition to some kind of mental illness, it is not impossible for that sadness to trigger clinical depression or anxiety disorders of some kind. So we want to pay attention to that. So if somebody is dealing with the catastrophic loss of a loved one, uh, and now we're a year and a half, two years, and we're still sad every day, we're still dragging every day, there's a very good chance that it's gone clinical, which means the chemical, the serotonin levels in the brain have reduced, and the brain isn't firing the synapses at a rate that it can actually process things quickly. You feel like you're trudging through quicksand all the time. Instead of color, the world is grace. Instead of energy, I feel weary. I I just don't want to get out of bed in the morning. If I had a choice, I would and could stay in bed, covers pulled over my head all day. Uh, If there's an event that brings that, I'm not too anxious about that. But if the event horizon was some time ago, and here we are now, a year and a half, two years later, and we're still, then we're, then we're probably needing some psychiatric assistance and some medication to bring the serotonin levels up so that they can be helpful in processing life uh, at a more reasonable pace. 
Um, yeah. Yes. And in fact, the more you suppress grief, the longer it lasts and the deeper it goes. It's the most powerful of the emotions and, and you'll either deal with it or it will deal with you. And, and there are a lot of people who, because of their family systems, aren't permitted to feel sad. And especially in the Christian community where we're, we, we trumpet at people that when people die, they go to heaven and it's better for them and everybody else. Nobody bothers to say, yeah, but I'm still here. And this sucks for me. And I miss my grandfather or I miss my dad or my mom or my brother, my sister, my friend. I, 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 I. And we don't legitimize their feeling and we make it unchristian to feel sad at the loss of their, their friend or loved one or, or whatever. Uh, and then that tends to go deep and, and, and last a long time. Yeah. Any questions on that? Any, any questions on any of the stuff we've been doing tonight? Then. Yeah, it's the same process. So, so once we start to get in touch with that, it's feel what you feel when you feel it. If you feel like crying in the middle of Target on a Saturday afternoon and you don't feel you can't go out in your car. And, and let yourself feel that emotion. Just let it flood out. You won't be stuck there forever because that's the fear. Once I start, I'm never going to stop. Yeah, you will. And sometimes it's just a matter of sitting with them as that... As that floods out. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.